Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features T.C. Boyle, Ron Carlson, and Susan Strait. You will now hear AWP Board of Trustees member Christopher Merrill and Kate Gale, Managing Editor of Red Hen Press, provide introductions. Welcome to this uh, special extravaganza on Rewriting the West, hosted by uh, Red Hen Press. My name is Christopher Merrill. I'm a member of AWP's Board of Trustees, and we have just a couple of housekeeping issues to take care of. Please uh, make sure you turn off your cell phones and remember that there is no flash photography allowed during the presentation. And after the reading, there will be a book signing. The books are for sale in the main lobby, but the signing will be taking place right outside the door. Give the writers a few minutes to get there. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce Kate Gale, who is the managing editor of Red Hen Press, who will be hosting this event. We're very excited to be here. Red Hen Press has been publishing poetry and prose in Los Angeles for 21 years. And <laughs> it's been a really fun time. We got into publishing because we wanted to publish Writing of the West, not because we wanted to duplicate what New York was already doing, but because we wanted to do something different. The kind of poetry that inspired us was the kind of poetry Claudia Rankine is writing, that Pete Fairchild writes, and that all these prose writers are writing. Big, sprawling stories in which there's machinery against the sky and beaches and cliffs and people falling off those cliffs. When I think of what are the differences between West Coast stories and the stories you might read that are written in New York, I, I really think of air and light and space. And, and all of the writers you're going to hear today are interested in place and how that affects how we think in the world and what we see and what we feel we can do. People come to Southern California to reinvent themselves. The thing about L.A. is that it feels like this mythical place where anything is possible. We have oranges, we have sex, we have drugs, we have parties. And that's before AWP comes to Los Angeles. <laughs> so L.A. in 2016 is going to be amazing, right, people? Yes. I think of the, the California dream as being like the American dream, only bigger. You don't just have trees, you have palm trees. You don't just have a house, you have a huge house. You don't just have a beautiful wife, you have a wife with ginormous breasts. You don't have a pet dog, you've got a pet dragon. It's sort of like the American dream in neon, like, like the American dream, only bigger and better. And so I feel like all three of the writers that are here today have looked at how big a story can be and how a story can walk around on really big feet like Star Wars and allow us with our imagination to enter a whole new space. So we're very excited that all three of these writers are here today at a Red Hen Press event here at AWP Minneapolis. We're all having an amazingly good time, right people? I'm going to introduce these three writers in the order in which they will be reading. Susan Strait will read first, and then Ron Carlson, and then T.C. Boyle. When I talk about reinvention and, and the California dream versus the American dream, 
I, I think of Susan Strait and her stories. She lives very near where she was born. I think she can see where she was born. The LA Times said there are two types of people, people who stay and people who leave. And Susan Strait is someone who's stayed. When you go to L.A. to reinvent yourself, if it doesn't work out, you move out to Riverside. (laughs) And then you have to start a whole new story. And Susan Strait is interested in what that story is. She's interested in sort of coming to the end of the line and what kind of a mythic place embraces people who haven't figured out who they are. When Every time I go to UC Riverside to give a talk, I encounter a group of students who have one thing to tell me. Susan Strait is the most amazing teacher you'll ever meet. I know some of her students are here today, and I think that it's an amazing thing to be someone who's a writer but that is extremely generous to students. And I know that's why she's so loved in Southern California. Susan Strait was born in Riverside. She still lives there with her family. She can actually see the hospital from her kitchen window, which her daughters find kind of pathetic most days. She walks a dog past the classroom where she wrote her first short story at 16 at Riverside City College. She's published seven novels and one middle grade reader. High Wire Moon was a finalist for the National Book Award in 2001. A Million Nightingales was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in 2006. Her short stories have appeared in Zotrope, The Ontario Review, The Oxford American, The Sun, Black Clock, and many other magazines. Her essays have appeared in The New York Times, Reader's Digest, Family Circle, Salon, The Los Angeles Times, and many other places. She was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship to work on High Wire Moon and a Lannan Prize to work on Take One Candle, Light a Room. Please welcome the magical, the brilliant Susan Strait. Okay, so now I have to do the opposite of everything Kate just said. (laughs) There's no wife with big booms. There's none of that stuff. I have to tell a really quick little story about the man sitting next to me, um, T.C. Boyle. And by the way, Ron and T.C. are all, are, we're all teaching, and they're great teachers too. And so I left Riverside when I was 17. My mom and dad put me in the pickup truck and dropped me off at USC because I was supposed to be a sports writer so that my mother could meet Vince Scully, with whom she was secretly in love. I guess my dad knows about it and doesn't care. So anyway, because it's my stepdad, and he's like, whatever, she'll come back. So... I saw Tom Boyle, and I was like, I'm not taking a class with him because he looks too scary. He looks like a biker from Fontana, and I just came from Fontana, and so I, I was afraid of him. And I was a sports writer, and I hung out with football players, and then when I was a junior, I took a creative writing class, and I wrote a short story. And I never did take a class with you, but what you did was, when I was a senior, he called me into his office. He sent for me. And he said, you're a fiction writer, and you should go to graduate school, and here are the places that you should apply. And that made all the difference in the world, and I appreciate it. So I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't told me that. Sometimes it takes that one little moment where someone tells you something that you know nothing about, and I knew nothing about college. Both my parents didn't graduate from high school. 
my mom had a green card when she was pregnant with me, so I am the classic person who didn't even know how to navigate college, and that made the difference. I'm going to read you something that I haven't, I haven't read for a long, long time, because last night someone asked me about my brother, and I started thinking about why we write fiction and about place, because I knew that that's what Kate was going to talk about. So my brother uh, and all my, all my friends, childhood friends and family, they were pretty crazy. Actually, now marijuana is legal, but my brother started growing marijuana when he was 10, and he was doing it hydroponically when he was 13, and that was in 1972. <laughs> so he was really good at it. And uh, yeah, so I'm sad that he is not here anymore. And I will say more about that in a moment. But anyway, my brother was a master marijuana grower, but a lot of his friends manufactured methamphetamine. And that was like something we invented, sort of. And we weren't proud of it, but it was what happened. And I didn't do any of that stuff because I wanted to be a writer. And I thought, if I mess up my brain, I have nothing. But my brother came uh, over to my house one day, and he was really shaken up. And he had been guarding a methamphetamine house. That was his job. And then he left and came to my house, and it blew up the, the place where he had just been. So I'm going to read you a little section that I wrote a long time ago after he told me that story. It's from High Wire Moon because I thought that would work out well today. This takes place in the desert, mountainous desert outside in Riverside County. Tiny rocks pinged under, under Elvia's father's truck. They stopped on a dirt slope, and when Elvia stood up in the truck bed, dizzy, her father's hand reached for hers his palm as hard as a stone. His girlfriend Callie said, why'd you stop all the way down here? The house was up the hill, a brown wooden shoebox with a few matchbox-sized cars nearby. Her father said, I ain't taking the truck up that hill. This is close enough. I don't know what asshole might be hanging out. Might steal my toolbox. Always hoping for the best, right? Callie said, hoisting her son Jeff's bottom onto her side. His thin white legs clamped around her like twist ties. So we got a hike. A lone mulberry tree stood like a feather duster in the yard when they made it up the hill. Elvia saw small toys scattered around the roots. A man blocked the doorway, calling, Who are you looking for? His voice came hard from inside his beard. His hands were tucked inside his jacket. Elvia watched Callie smile and do her thing. Lee, she said, like a lullaby. Lee called me up. She said, come on by and bring her these. The tiny glass pipes that they had made with a blowtorch from air fresheners clinked inside the bag. Elvia's father said, look, all I want is a beer and a quiet place to sit down, okay? And then the man grinned, bone under the reddish hair, and he said, you and me both, man, them kids in there are driving me crazy. Ellie here is real good with kids, Callie said quickly. Come on, sweetie. Her father and the other man walked toward the car, their hands gesturing in a secret code. But inside, the house was as hot as sleeping breath, the darkness a yawning mouth. Elvia smelled something sharp, Windex or pee, coffee burned on the stove. The woman named Lee talked on a telephone balanced on her hunched shoulder, while she bent over a box on the floor. Women always got to cook, no matter what, right? She said, and then she hung up. Hey, Callie, help me start on this box. The government's keeping all the ephedrine locked up, and some's coming from Mexico, but I can't get enough. 
Then her eyes landed hard and gray on Elvia. And she said, who the hell is this? And Callie whispered, it's Larry's kid. Her mom's Indian. She turned around and said, where's your kids? Lee bent her head toward a doorway. And Callie said to Elvia, take Jeff in there, sweetie. Lee's got some chips. From the kitchen doorway, Elvia saw the huge blackened pots on the old stove. Lee handed her a bag of Doritos and then knelt again by the box. She pulled out packets of pills. I got these from the quick stop. We got Sudafed and Efidac. Callie began pushing the pills from their foil packets, her thumbs curving as if she were snapping green beans on a porch. And Elvia guided Jeff's narrow shoulders toward the blue light coming from the bedroom. A baby slept in the crib against the wall. Elvia bent to see the small chest rising and falling as fast as she could blink. She smelled vinegar, milk, salt. That's my baby, the little girl said. She was behind her. She was about three, with blonde hair curled thin like spiderwebs around her ears. She wore pull-ups hanging low. And that's my brother. She pointed to a two-year-old standing near the bed. His diaper was heavy and long as a white beaver tail behind him. Elvia stayed in the room for nearly an hour. She could smell chemicals threading through the air now, like incense sharpened with burned metal. The little girl eventually slumped to her side and put her head in Elvia's lap. The boys ate all the Doritos, picking up the smallest triangles like confetti off the floor, and then they lay beside her too. All the breaths rose around her like slow crickets. She went back out into the kitchen, and Lee hovered over the stove, tiny blue crowns of flame under the pots. The shimmering air enveloped Elvia. It prickled her ears and lips hot. Just put him down for a sec, that baby, because i got to do one more thing, Lee said. He'll be okay. I don't feel good, Elvia whispered, taking off the baby's sodden diaper, and Lee laughed. Callie came in. Lee's baby was rocking on his hands and knees, his moon-white butt in the air. Elvia couldn't breathe. Lee turned from her stirring to take the diaper, and the baby's eyes were gleaming circles of wet. Elvia went back outside. She sat in the truck. She said, I don't want to be up there. And then when she moved the gear shift, the truck eased down the dirt slope with her father in it. The house roof leapt toward the sky in a shower of light. The explosion thumped the truck door and reached into Knuckleburn Elvia's cheek. Her father had said, Damn it, I knew we shouldn't stay. What the hell, what the hell? She blew it up. She blew it up, Elvia said. The dark car raced down the knoll and past them, no headlights, a black cockroach skimming the dirt, heading down off the mountain, and that house was burning like a lone jack-o'-lantern. Go, Elvia's father said. You want to learn to drive? Drive home, goddammit. Go, Ellie. Elvia imagined all the kids in the bedroom, their pale arms and legs twined around each other as she had arranged them when she stood up. She pushed her foot carefully on the gas and turned the wheel. The truck rumbled back up the slope toward the waves of heat. I forgot about the kids, her father said. What the hell were they doing in there? Cooking, 
she said, her eyes red and wide. She turned the wheels as he had taught her to do to park on a hill. The hot air was a scalding tongue on her arm, and she opened the truck door to look for somebody, anybody who had gotten out. The heat forced her to a crouch, and then the little girl's tiny figure floated like a moth past the tree. Her hands came first, and then her arms gray, her hair singed, and her cheeks red. My mommy told me, run. She will get my brother and my baby. But then the house fell in on itself, fierce traces of blue streaking the flames, and Elvia saw the little girl's eyes shining empty and silver as dimes. Her father grabbed the girl and pushed Elvia into the truck. He started it again, spinning the wheels, and Elvia pulled the girl onto her lap. The hair curled black near her small ear, and her thumb was in her mouth, and her eyes were closed to the embers floating in the sky when the truck roared down the hill. The first story that I read of Ron Carlson, uh, I was teaching, and it was in an anthology, and it was called Bigfoot Stole My Wife. And I really fell in love with this story and got excited and started reading more Ron Carlson, and I found the following story, which is I Am Bigfoot, which Bigfoot tells his side of the story, and one of the things he mentions is that he's read the first story and that it's not well written. And I just immediately liked that so much because I felt like uh, the 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 I, I felt like I got to know the author a little bit, and I felt like I was in the same room with him, and he was telling me stories. I think most people who have read Ron's short stories have several stories that they've fallen in love with. I also love the What We Wanted to Do, which starts, What we wanted to do was pour oil on the heads of our enemies, but as everyone now knows, we poured warm oil. And Ron is very interested between the gap between what we desire and what actually happens and how crossing that gap transforms us. He's the author of five short story collections and six novels, including Return to Oak Pine and The Signal. His fiction has appeared in Harper's, The New Yorker, Playboy, GQ, Best American Short Stories, and the O. Henry Prize Stories. His book of poems, Room Service, Poems, Meditations, Outcries, and Remarks, was published by Red Hen Press in 2012. And his second book with Red Hen is The Blue Box, and we're working on a third book. His book on writing, Ron Carlson Writes a Story, published by Gray Wolf, is taught very widely, and probably many of you in this room have read it. He's now the director of the writing program at the University of California at Irvine, and he lives at Huntington Beach. Don't you wish you lived there, too? Please welcome Ron Carlson. Uh, thank you. It's a privilege to be here uh, with these fine writers and with you, you fine writers. And I am uh, going to read the first few pages of a book called The Signal, which is set in the Wind River Mountains and is the book most about place of mine, perhaps. Although place is very, very important to me as a writer, I, as we all know, nothing happens nowhere, and I work hard to create some place that I can believe in so something can actually happen. And um, so that when I dealt with these mountains in Wyoming, I spend way too much of my time in offices, and I wanted this book to be a real solid 
love letter to that place. And of course, in that place, there are trees and mountains and lakes and some big weather and the kinds of things we see in literature many times where it's used as in a decorative way. And the rain is not a decoration. And in my undergraduate classes, I banned the rain. I had to. The, um, someone would write, then Cheryl walked away in the rain. And I said, nope, not a chance. She's going to have to be dry, but she can leave. Um, and so when I wrote the rain and I wrote a campfire and I wrote a mountain of all things, a mountain that's difficult, I wanted to make them as real as possible so that this book would offer me some sucker when I turned around and read it. And what I do in, with place is many times write from what I know toward what I don't. So the opening little page here when he's unloading his truck, that is actually a place I've been. I don't think it's necessary to be the places that you create, but it's very important to occupy them with your very muscular and empathetic imagination. Um, okay, and this first page, Mac is 30 and he's waiting. He's hoping that his ex-wife will join him for a trip into the mountains. They made it an appointment, but he's not sure she'll keep it. And then the rest of the section is when they were 17. He drove the smooth, winding two-track up through the high aspen grove and crossed the open meadow to the edge of the pines at the Cold Creek Trailhead and parked his father's old blue Chevrolet pickup by the ruined sign in the September twilight. He had been right. There were no other vehicles. There had been no fresh tire tracks on the 10-mile ascent from the old highway except for the set of duels that had come almost halfway and turned around. That would have been Blue Bride's horse trailer seeing to his cattle the week before. Mac had seen two dozen heads scattered in the low sage all along the way. He got out of the truck and reached back for the coffee he'd picked up at the Crowhart General Store an hour ago. It was cold. He walked back and opened the tailgate and sat finally lifting his eyes to look east across the tiers of Wyoming spread beneath him in the vast echelons of brown and gray. It was dark here against the forest, but light gathered across the planet, and he could see the golden horizon at 150 miles. He wanted to see headlights, but there were none. He wanted to see headlights bumping up that old road to meet him here at the appointed hour. He could tell that it already snowed once sometime last week, but there was no sign of it now, no patches in the deep shade, no mud in the tracks. But the country was blonder, the grasses still standing, but bleached once, paler, as if slapped by the first weather of the season. Mac sipped the cold coffee thick with cream and looked for her car. She would come or she wouldn't come, and he would still have his mission. He said it aloud, she'll come or she won't, but you're still going in. He'd met Vonnie when they were both 17, and he didn't like her immediately because it was his personal policy to dislike all the people who came to the ranch, the families from Gross Point and Greenwich and Manhattan and Princeton and from the 10 other platinum republics in their beautiful flannel shirts and new Levi's. He treated them well and saw to their safety around the horses, and he taught them what he could about the ranch and securing knots and fire safety and the birds and the snakes and the occasional bears. He took them to big springs and rock tree trailheads, but he didn't bring them here. He envied their gear, their bright boots, their gorgeous bone pocket knives, but he never stole one. He was quiet and known as being quiet, and it was not an act. He had learned that it was the way he kept any power at all. After his mother died of the cancer 
and his father and the ranch manager, Sawyer Day, saw the money story, they had started taking 10 weeks of guests in the summers. They needed the money. They hired a great cook, a woman named Amarantha out of Logan, Utah, and she laid a table like he had never seen. For that time, the ranch paid its bills. The reputation of Box Creek grew, and they were booked steady all those years, 24 people every week. And Matt grew up with them from when he was 10, answering the same questions about horseshoes and hay. And can I feed this horse an apple without him biting me? A horse on a dude ranch eats a lot of apples. Vani's family came out from Chapel Hill, where her mother was a professor of political science. And he gave her the same horse every year, Rusty, a benevolent roan who was golden once a day if the sun was right. Vani was a strong athlete and played soccer in college, but Mac avoided her as he did all the guests. Many weeks, the guests had romances with other guests, intrigues afoot, and Mac had plenty of work grooming horses when the day ended while everyone showered in the big house and then in the two cottages and lined up for Amarantha's astounding buffet. Plus, his father had spoken to him after, third, after the third summer. It was obvious the way the kids hung out by the rail fence when Mac was shoeing a horse or working the tack. They'd follow him around, the boys and the girls, and they wanted to know about him. His father called him into the big house, and they sat in the small front office that Sawyer Day used the two days a week he came out to do the books. And his father swiveled the oak chair to Mac, and they talked. The room was dominated. The room was cloistered by the varnished pine shelves full of books, his father's collection of Zane Gray and Jack London, and Western history, and a beaten tin umbrella stand full of rolled maps. These kids look up to you, his father said. I don't know, Max said. He sat on the dark leather hassock, orphaned from its long-lost chair. Yes, you do. They should look up to you. You're a good hand. They're not used to this. All they've got is their car and the junior prom. You're an exotic item, Mac. Okay, the boy said. But what we are to these people is sort of a cliché. They come out here to taste this, and it's good for all of us. But these girls... Some of them are going to fall for you, you big, strong cowboy. His father tapped Mac's knee with his two fingers. Come on, you can look at me. I know you're a good kid. Some of these gals from New York even come after your old man. A little fling out west for a week. You want to be a cliché? No, sir, Mac said, I don't. You need me to recount the history of Sheridan the racehorse? No, sir, please. His father smiled. Have you recovered from that lesson? He'd taken the boy to witness their only thoroughbred, Sheridan, at stud when Mac was nine years old. No, sir, Mac said truly. No one could. Mac went on and repeated what his father had said that day. That's enough of the birds and bees for one boy. Well, good, his father said. We won't be cliches then. That's all. I expect you know what to do. Talk the day with these kids and riding and horses and weather and then send them back to supper. Don't walk with them or have them out near the bunkhouse. My eyes are right here. I know you know what to do. I don't want this business venture we're in to hurt you, boy. I love you, and I love this place. Do you know it? Yes, sir, I do. Show me your hands. Mac leaned and held his hands out and then turned them over. They'd always done this, a show of hands. His father looked him over, nails, cuticles, knuckles, palms. You could tell a good ranch hand by the number of nicks. The fewer the better, and as the years passed, Mac's hands cleared up. His father squeezed his son's hands now and said, That's enough of, of that. Quite a talk for the old homestead. You go, get to work. 
and he did the work on the long day ranch schedule. On Thursday nights, he ran the one late night campfire, all those chocolate crackers, and then the spooky story. He had started it when he was 13, the story he'd heard part of from his own dad about Hiram, broken-hearted and half-mad, who still roamed the woods near here, living in rotten logs and following campers in his search for a beating heart. At night, when the fishermen's campfires would shrink down to wavering coals, Hiram would sneak into the camps and reach into the tents and put his head against the campers' chests to try to hear again the thumping of a heart. His own had stopped so long ago. Mac would let the big ranch fire dwindle and collapse and lower his voice as he told the episodes. Hiram's heart had been broken by his own true love when one night he came calling and saw her through the lighted window in the arms of another man. A fisherman, some kid would ask. Not much a one, Mac would say, but maybe. And Hiram turned and fled that place, and he went into the woods, these woods, forever. Half the kids would already be in their pajamas and robes, sitting legs up and arms folded in the canvas camp chairs, listening. They'd all heard of Hiram from last week or from last summer, and his legend was part of the Box Creek lore now. Mac would hold out his hand like a claw and say how Hiram only wanted human contact. His loneliness was larger than Wyoming. He only wanted them to hear a beating heart, but he was misunderstood and called a cannibal, though that was never any proof of that. I think he was a cannibal, some boy would say. He ate the campers and cooked them over the fire. They never came back. Mac would let this remark hang in the air. Oh, he's out there, Mac would say, indicating the circle of darkness around them. And now we know for sure that he's misunderstood. If the children got too frightened, which was why they came every week, Mac would back up and tell about Hiram's younger days, working with wild geese and his travels in the cities, which did not agree with him. Then as the hour turned, Mac would stand and stir the fire pit. And as the cinders schooled up red, he would say, Hiram listens for a beating heart. Can you hear your beating heart? The night would glow with silence as the, and the popping of the fire. Now scoot. We're going to ride horses tomorrow, and I don't want you falling asleep. It was a favorite time for him, watching the young people scurry back to the cabin's lit porches. They tried not to run, but they sometimes ran. It was his first love, the ranch, and he loved it night and day. And then came the second. The year he was 17, Mac took the weekly ridge ride with all the kids, nine riders winding up the line shack trail to the aspen draws that led to the mountaintop. He rode his horse, Copper Bob, the captain. There were two old log cabins along the way, slumped and fallen in, the new trees thrusting through the collapsed roof beams. They always stopped and took stagey pictures with the young people pretending to knock at the doorway or looking out the ancient window frames. Sometimes they dug around for old cans or bottles and they made up stories about the lonely men who lived there, how they had a dog or played cards all winter. One of the young writers would always say, maybe this is where Hiram lived. And Mac would explain that he never slept in the same place twice. He was always wandering and without a home. The cabins always sobered Mac because he knew how hard such lives would have been. Over the years, he'd found and kept purple medicine bottles and boot buckles from the old places. Vonnie was a good rider and Rusty knew her, and they liked to lead the train through the gloomy tree shade. The horses stepped quietly up the grassy slopes, past the wildflowers along the faint trail they'd walked a hundred times, their tails swishing silently, timed at the gate. Mac watched the girl float in her saddle at the top of the easy parade. 
This was the golden center of Mac's life, all these fine animals geared up bright and taking the bobbing children up every step farther from home than they had ever been. Mac saw a shadow in the hillside and knew what it was in a second. He sat up and snugged his reins from where he rode behind the children. When the bear sat up in the tall June grass at the top of the draw, Mac thought he saw him rub his eyes like a man might in disbelief. It was a luxurious black bear, and he didn't stand or look alarmed. He sat and looked into the face of the first horse. Mac had known moments like this, and usually something happened very fast as the surprises doubled. Rusty stopped short without rearing, but Vonnie went over the front of her saddle and fell. Mac felt something open in him. All the horses stopped, veterans. Mac knew that when Rusty turned riderless, all the horses would turn and start stepping down. He loved it that they knew not to run. They never ran, even on the last flat stretch near the ranch yard, even when the tourists urged them with their heels or reins or any cowboy moves they had seen in films for years on end. Mac was moving. He clucked, and Copper Bob eyed the bear and still approached. Vani was down, and Mac had to get down and lift her with an arm and lead the horse to turn away. The bear hadn't moved watching the performance. At 20 paces, Mac boosted the girl up into his saddle and walked surely down behind the children's cavalcade, which was now headed inexorably toward the ranch, two miles below. Those who had been at the rear and hadn't seen the bear would be astonished and envious as they heard the story, but by supper they would have their own tales of the close call and the huge beast. As they passed below the cabin shambles under the open hillside, Mac whistled and Rusty stopped, and the line of riders stopped. Are you okay, Mac said. It was a bear, Vonnie said. She was lit. They reached her horse and Mac helped her down. Let's see. She had skinned her wrist and she pulled out her shirt and showed him where her waist was bruised, her belt full of dirt and grass. I'm okay. Can we go back and get a picture? Everybody had a camera. Not today, he said. That bear doesn't want his picture taken today. He still had her arm and turned her in examination. Did he attack, one of the kids said. No, Max said. He was sleeping, and we woke him. Hibernating, one of the kids said. Not yet, Max said. Let's go down. He held Rusty while Vani mounted. She was turned, looking back up at the hill. That bear was hibernating. Bears hibernate, the expert offered again. Go, go, Mac called, and the line of horses and riders began the walk home. Thank you very much. So, as with Ron Carlson, the first work I read of T.C. Boyle was a short story. I think, like many of you, it was Greasy Lake. Um, and, and then I read this the short story, The Long Haul, and I was just completely taken in by this whole world uh, that he would create inside a short story. The first novel I read, if you haven't read this novel of T.C. Boyle's, you need to read it, was Water Music. Um, water Music enters this whole other time and place. And T.C. Boyle has written books that are all over the place, uh, not obviously just on the West Coast, but novels that happen with all kinds of characters. He's the author of 24 books of fiction, including most recently The Plague. 
His novels include Drop City, The Inner Circle, Tooth and Claw, The Human Fly, Talk Talk, The Women, Wild Child, When the Killing's Done, San Miguel, uh, and several collections of short stories. And this novel I mentioned, Water Music. Uh, you, you actually, when you're, if you try to keep up with all of his books, which I do, you start to wonder if he's writing them more quickly than you can think about them afterwards. He received a PhD in 19th century British literature from Iowa in 77, and his MFA from the University of Iowa as well. Uh, he was distinguished professor at USC for many years, also much beloved by his students. His work has been translated into a couple dozen foreign languages. He's read all over the world, even Serbian and Slovene, Lithuanian, Latvian, Turkish. I like to think of all these people in these other countries reading Water Music and Greasy Lake. His work has been published in many magazines, including New Yorker, Harper's, Esquire, The Atlantic Monthly, Playboy, Paris Review, GQ, he has a Penn Faulkner Prize for Best Novel of the Year, the Penn Malamute Prize for a Short Story, and the Best Foreign Novel in France for Tortilla Curtain, which is set in Los Angeles. He currently lives in a Frank Lloyd Wright house in Santa Barbara. Please welcome T.C. Boyle. Hello, folks. Well, it is quite a pleasure to get to be on stage with three old friends and wonderful writers. We're supposed to tell you what California is like. I have brought an artifact with me. This was from the Santa Barbara Historical Museum, and I'm not sure how to work it, actually. And yesterday in St. Louis, I saw water in its natural state for the first time in years. We are having a drought, folks. You may have heard that Jerry Brown, our governor, has asked everybody to cut back 25%. However, where I'm living, in a little village just east of Santa Barbara, we were put on a 25% ration February a year ago, so we are pretty used to it. The deal is, my wife and I are bathing just once a week together in the tub, after which we wash the clothes there, then boil the spaghetti and throw the rest out on the rose bushes. I mean, it is tough. It's really been tough. So, that's California. That's what it's like today. I would like, since this is so much fun, I am, I'm on tour for The Harder They Come right now. This is my eighth stop of 22, and so it's so, so nice. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to read you a new story that's not published yet. It's called The Five-Pound Burrito. And people are always saying, well, where do you get ideas for stories? This one is extremely specific. I read uh, in the LA Times uh, two years ago an obituary of Cesar Rojas. Who was he? He was a guy who owned a little cafe in Boyle Heights in LA. Um, and his legacy, and we all want a legacy, you know, uh, st uh, teachers, students, writers, we want to leave something behind. His legacy is the five pound burrito. So I wondered about this. How could this be, and what kind of legacy is the five-pound burrito? So, as usual, I wrote a story in order to find out. And here it is. He lived in a world of grease, and no matter how often he bathed, which was once a day, rigorously, and no shower but a drawn bath, he smelled of carnitas, machaca, and chopped white onion and soapy cilantro that he folded each morning into his pico de gallo. The grease itself was worked up under his nails and into the folds of his skin, folds that hung looser and penetrated deeper now that he was no longer young. 
This was a condition of his life and his livelihood. And if it had its drawbacks, he was 62 and never married because what woman would want a man who smelled so inveterately of fried pork? It had its rewards, too. For one thing, he was his own boss. The little hole-in-the-wall cafe he'd opened back in the 60s, still doing business when so many showier places had come and gone. For another, he was content. His world restricted to what he knew, the sink, the dishwasher, the griddle, and the grill. And he saw his customers, the regulars and one-timers alike, as a kind of flock that had to be fed, like the chickens his mother had kept when he was a boy. What did he do with himself? He scraped his griddle, took his aprons, shirts, and underwear to the Chinese laundry that had been in operation nearly as long as he had, and went home each evening to put his feet up and sit in front of the TV. His only employee was a sour woman named Sepide, an Iranian, or as she preferred it, Persian immigrant, who'd escaped her native country after the regime change and was between 45 and 60, depending on what time of day you asked her. In the mornings, she was unconquerably old, but by closing time, her age had dropped, though she dragged her feet, her shoulders slumped, and her makeup grew increasingly tragic. She was dark-skinned and dark-eyed, and she dyed her once-black hair black all over again. People took her for a Mexican, which was really a matter of indifference to him. He didn't care whether his waitress was from Chapultepec or Hokkaido, as long as she did her job and took some of the pressure off him. And she did, and had for some 20 years now and counting. On this particular day, midweek, dreary, the downtown skyline obliterated by fog or smog or whatever they wanted to call it, Sebede was late because she took the bus from the section of town known as Little Persia, where she lived with her mother and an equally sour-faced brother he'd met once or twice, and it had broken down. As luck would have it, there was a line outside the door when at 11 o'clock on the dot, he shuffled across the floor and flipped the sign from closed to open. In came the customers, most of them wearing familiar faces, and as they crowded in at the counter and unfolded their newspapers and propped up their tablets and laptops on the six tables arranged in a narrow line along the far wall that featured the framed black-and-white photo of a dead president, he began taking orders. First in line was Scott, a student from the university who had the same thing five days a week, black coffee and the chorizo and scrambled egg burrito he lathered with jalapenos just to wake up, as he put it, on the mornings he was capable of speech. Next to him were Umberto and Baltasar, two baggy-pants old men from the neighborhood who would slurp heavily sugared coffee for the next three hours and try to talk him to death as he hustled from grill to griddle and refrigerator and back. And here were two others, easing onto the stools beside them. New faces, more students, but big, all head and neck, shoulder and belly, footballers, no doubt, who would devour everything in a two-foot radius, complain that the portions were too small and the burritos like prisoners' rations and try to suck the glaze off the plates in the process. Of course, he should be happy because the students had discovered him yet again. And how many generations had made the same discovery and then faded away in the lean months when he could have used their business? He dealt out a stack of plastic menus as if he were flipping cards like the dealer at the blackjack table at Caesars, where he liked to spend his two weeks off every February, bathed in the little spotlight that illuminated the table, a gratis rum and coke sizzling at his elbow. Then he leaned over the counter and announced in the voice that was dying in his throat a little more each day as he groped toward old age and infirmity, No table service today. You people back there got to come up to the counter if you want to get fed. That was it. He didn't need to give an explanation. If they wanted Michelin stars, let them line up over in Beverly Hills or Pacific Palisades. But he couldn't help adding, she's late today, Sepide. And so it began. 
Breakfast, then the lunch rush, furious work at a hot, cramped kitchen, and all he could see was people's mouths opening and closing, and the great wads of beans and rice and marinated pork, chicken and beef swelling their throats. It was past noon before he could catch his breath. He didn't even have time for a cigarette, and that put him in a foul mood, the lack of nicotine. And when he saw the face in the tortilla that provided the foundation for the burrito he was just then constructing, he ignored it. It was nobody's face. Eyes, nose, cheekbones, brow. And it meant nothing, except that he was exhausted, already exhausted, and he still had six and a half hours to go. And sure, he'd seen faces before. Muhammad, the Buddha, Sandy Koufax once. But Jesus? Never. The woman over on Broadway had seen Jesus exactly as he was in the Shroud of Turin, only the Shroud in this case was made of unleavened flour, lard, and water. He could have used Jesus himself because that woman got rich and the lines for her place went around a whole city block. If only he had Jesus, he could hire somebody more competent and dependable than Sepidae and sit back and take a load off. That was what he was thinking as he smeared refritos over the face of the tortilla and piled up rice and meat and guacamole and crema, cheese, shredded lettuce, pico de gallo, the works. And why not for yet another pair of footballers who were sitting there at the back table like statues come to life? Call it whimsy or maybe revenge. But he mounted the ingredients up till the burrito was as big as a stuffed pillowcase. Let them complain about that one. That was when he had his moment of inspiration, divine or otherwise. He would weigh it, actually weigh it. And that would be his ammunition and his pride too, the biggest burrito in town. If he didn't have Jesus, at least he would have that. We each live through our time on earth in an accumulation of milliseconds, seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, and years. And life is a path we must follow invariably until the end. Is there change or the hope of it? Yes, but change is wearing and bad for the nerves and almost always for the worse. So it was with Sal, the American-born son of Mexican immigrants who'd opened Salvador's cafe with a loan from his uncle James when he was still in his 20s and now, nearly 40 years later, saw his business take off like a rocket on the fuel of the five-pound burrito. Suddenly, his homely cafe was a destination not only for his regulars and the famished and greedy of the neighborhood, but for the educated classes from the west side who pulled up out front in their shining new German automobiles and stepped through the door as if they expected the floor to fall away beneath the soles of their running shoes and suck them down to some deeper, darker place. This was change, positive change, at least at first. He hired a man to help with the dishes and the sweeping up, and a second waitress, a young girl studying for her nursing degree who gave everybody in the place something to look at. And on the counter, raised at eye level on a cloth-covered pedestal, was the big butcher's scale on which he ceremoniously weighed each dripping pork, chicken, or beef burrito before Sepide, or the new girl, Marta, made a show of hefting the supersized plate and setting it down laboriously in front of the customer who had ordered it. A man from the newspaper came, and then another. The line went round the block, and never mind Jesus. Sal was there one early morning. Typically, he arose at five and was in the kitchen by six, preparing things ahead of time. And, of course, with success came the need for yet more preparation. When he felt a numinous shift in the atmosphere, as if all those timid first-timers from the west side had been right after all. The floor didn't open up beneath him, of course. But as he cut meat from the bone and shucked avocados for guacamole, he felt the atmosphere permeated by a new presence, and no ordinary presence, but the kind that makes a dog's hackles rise when it sniffs at the shadows. For a moment, he felt dizzy and wondered if he were having some sort of attack, the inevitable myocardial infarction or stroke that would bring him down for good. 
But the dizziness passed, and he found himself in the kitchen still, the knife clenched in his hand and the cubes of pork gently oozing on the chopping block before him. He shook his head to clear it. Something was different, but he couldn't say what. The morning wore on in a fugue of chopping, dicing, and tearing up over the emanations of habaneras and jalapenos, his back aching and his hands dripping with the juice of the hundred millionth tomato of his resuscitated life. And he forgot all about it till the knock came at the alley door. This was the knock of Stanford Wong, who delivered produce to the restaurants of the neighborhood and was as punctual as the great clock in Greenwich, England, that kept time for the world. Sal wiped his hands on his apron and hurried to the door because Stanford, understandably, didn't like to be delayed. There might have been a noise outside the door, a furtive scratching as of some animal trying to get in, but it didn't register until he pulled back the door and saw that it wasn't Stanford stationed there at all, but an erect five-and-a-half-foot rooster dressed in Stanford Wong's khaki shorts and khaki shirt with a black plastic nameplate, Stanford, fixed over the breast. Was he taken aback? Was he seeing things? He'd had his breakfast, hadn't he? Yes, yes, of course, eggs, chicken embryos, fried in butter, topped with a sprinkle of cotija cheese, and served up on toast. He just stood there, blinking. But the bird, which somehow seemed to have hands as well as wings, was impatient and brushed right by him with a crate of lettuce and half a dozen clear plastic bags of tomatillos, peppers, and the like, balanced against his, its, chest, setting the load down on the counter and swinging round abruptly with Stanford's receipt book in hand. But there were words now. The bird saying something out of a beak that snapped and glistened to show off a pink wedge of tongue, and yet the words made no sense, unless you were to interpret them in the usual way, as in, same order tomorrow, and you take care now. The door swung shut. The crate sat astride the counter, just as it had yesterday and the day before and the day before that. It took him a moment, and maybe he'd better have another cup of coffee. Before he went to the crate and began shoving heads of lettuce into the refrigerator, all the while thinking that there were two possibilities here. The first, and most obvious, was that he was hallucinating. The second, and more disturbing, was that Stanford Wong had been transformed into a giant rooster. Either way, the prospects could hardly be called favorable. And if he was losing his mind in the uproar over the five-pound burrito, who could blame him? Next, it was Sepa Day, dressed in black skirt and white blouse, but with her head covered in feathers and her nose replaced by a dull puce beak and no shoes on her feet. Because her legs, her scaly yellow legs, supported not phalanges and painted toenails, but displayed naked claws of an antediluvian hen. She was never talkative, especially in the morning. But whatever she had to say to him came in a series of irritable clucks and gabbles, and he just, well, he just blew her off. Then came Marta, and she was a hen, too. And by the time Oscar Marti, the cleanup man, showed his face, it was no surprise at all that he should be a rooster just like Stanford Wong. And for that matter, once the door opened for business, that all the male customers should be crowing and flapping their wings while their female counterparts clucked and brooded and held their own counsel over pocketbooks stuffed with eyeliner, compacts, and lipstick that had no discernible purpose. Something was wrong here, desperately wrong. But work was work, and whether he could understand what anybody was saying, customers or staff, really didn't seem to matter. As everything by this juncture had been reduced to routine, spread the tortilla, crown it with toppings, fold it, dip the ladle in the salsa verde, and serve it up on the big white scale. That was Monday. Mondays were always a trial, what with forcing yourself back into the routine after the day of rest, the Lord's Day, when people went to church to dip their fingers in holy water and count their blessings. Sal locked up, locked up after work that night, and if he noticed that everyone, 
Every living man, woman, and child on the streets and sealed behind the windows of their cars was a member of a different species, poultry that is. He didn't let it affect him. Even so, the minute he came in the door of his apartment, he went straight to the mirror in the bathroom and was relieved to see his own human face staring back at him out of drooping eyes. He poured himself a drink that night, a practice he found himself engaging in less and less as he got older, heated up a burrito, regular size, in the microwave, and watched reality TV till he couldn't hold his eyes open anymore. It would be one thing to say that his dreams were populated with hens, roosters, and bobbing chicks, but the fact was that he dreamed of nothing, or nothing he could remember on wakening. He was a blank canvas, tabula rasa. Mechanically, he shaved. Mechanically, he broke two eggs in a pan and laid three strips of bacon beside them, and he drove mechanically to work in the dark. When Stanford Wong's knock came precisely at eight, Sal moved briskly to the door, his mood soaring on his second cup of coffee and the prospect of yet another record-setting day. If things kept up like this, he'd soon be sitting in a chair all day long watching the world come and go while the new grill man he'd hire and train himself did all the work. And it was all due to the inspiration of that day six months back when he'd brought out the scale and piled up the burrito and made his statement to the world. The five-pound burrito. It was a concept, an innovation unmatched by anybody in the city, whether they had a sit-down place or a lunch cart or even one of those eateries with the white tablecloths and the waiters who looked at you as if you belonged on the plate instead of sitting upright in a chair and putting in an order. People just couldn't understand what it took to consume a burrito of that caliber. No individual, not even the greediest, most swollen footballer, could ever hope to get it all down in a single sitting. Though people placed bets, and Sal had agreed to advertise that if you could manage to eat the whole thing, it was on the house. Very few could. In fact, only one man, skinny, Asian, the size of a child, was able to accomplish the feat incontrovertibly, and it turned out later that he was world famous as a competitive eater who'd won the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest three years running. But here was Sanford Wong's knock, and as Sal opened the door, he didn't know what to expect, least of all what he saw standing there before him on its hind legs, his hind legs. This wasn't Stanford Wong, and it wasn't a chicken either. No, this was a hog with pinched little hog's eyes and a bristling inflamed snout, but it was dressed in Stanford Wong's khaki shorts and khaki shirt with a black plastic nameplate fixed over the breast. It, he, trotted brusquely into the kitchen and set the crate of lettuce and plastic bags of vegetables on the counter, then swung round with Stanford Wong's accounts ledger, clutched under one arm, and grunted and stuffled out a sentence or two that could only have meant, hey, how they hanging, and see you tomorrow, same order, right? Right. So he chopped peppers and grilled pork and made a pot of albondiga soup, shredded lettuce, and stirred up yesterday's steam trays of rice and refritos and thought nothing of it when Sepade appeared as a grunting old sow in her black skirt and white blouse, and then Marta, resplendent in red shorts and a clinging top in her guise as a smooth pink young shoat who nonetheless stood five feet seven inches tall on her cloven hooves and managed to wield her tray and the heft of the big burritos as if she'd been born to it. As on the previous day, work consumed him. And if his customers vocalized in a cascade of snorts and aspirated grunts, it was all the same to him. Back at home that night, he passed on the burrito left over from work, though he hated waste, and instead slipped a package of frozen meatless lasagna into the oven and poured himself not one but two drinks before he let the TV lull him to a dreamless sleep. He found himself on edge the following morning and drank a cup of tea instead of coffee, and had only toast instead of his usual fried eggs with bacon, ham, or chorizo. 
It was dark as he drove to work, and if his headlights happened to catch a figure walking along a shadowy street or spot a face behind an oncoming windshield, he made himself look away. What next? That was all he could think. Cattle, no doubt. Huge, stinking, lowing steers speaking their own arcane language and demanding big burritos, the biggest in town. When Stanford Wong's knock came this time, he was prepared, or thought he was. But oh, how mistaken he turned out to be. This wasn't Stanford Wong, and it wasn't a rooster or a hog or a steer either. It was an alien, and not one of the indocumentados of which his late sainted parents were representatives, but one of the true aliens with their lizard skin, razor teeth, and eyeballs like ashtrays. Of course, this one was wearing Stanford Wong's clothing and was carrying his crate of lettuce, but its claws were wicked and long and scraped mercilessly at the linoleum, and when it spoke, How's business? And that five-pounder's going to make you rich. He could only hiss. All day, as the aliens crowded the cafe and his own aliens, Sepede and Marta, served them their big, dripping, chile verde drenched burritos, he kept wondering about their spaceship, and if it was like the ones in the movies, all silver and gleaming and silent, and more to the point, where they'd parked it. No matter. The aliens lashed at their food with a snap of their gleaming teeth and a quick release of their forked tongues, and the cash register rang and the line went round the block. It was around then, on that day, the third day, almost at closing time, that Sal saw a new face in the tortilla he laid on the grill for the burrito he was preparing for a big square-shouldered footballer alien. This face the brow, the blind eyes and moving lips that swelled against the pressure of his tongs was one that leapt out, of him, out at him in its familiarity. And who was it? Not Jesus, no, but someone, someone more important, if only to him. It was his father, the man who'd held him in his arms and pushed him on the swing and showed him how to grip a baseball and figure his equations and algebra. His father, dead these 30 years and more. The lips moved. And here, Sal felt himself lifted into the arena of the fantastic, moved and spoke. You're overreaching, Salvador, pushing your luck, flirting with excess, an exception when the truth is you're not exceptional at all, but just a mule like me, made to work and live an honest, proportionate life. Go back to two pounds, Salvador, two maximum. And please, for the love of God and his angels too, dump some aromatic salts in that bathtub. And then the lips stopped moving in that impress of dough, and the voice faded out. But there it was, revelation from the mouth of a flour tortilla. And the next day, despite the complaints of his customers, human beings just like him, he went back to the standard-sized burrito. Trade fell off. He had to let Marta and then Oscar go, too. The chickens went back to their hen houses and the hogs to their pens, and the aliens trooped out across the lot to wherever they'd parked their spaceship and whirred off into the sky in a blaze of light still traveling as day turned to night and the stars came out to welcome them home. Thank you. The chickens were the sexiest. (laughs) Well, we have a few minutes, and I thought I'd just throw out one question that maybe you could all uh, answer. So I think of all of your work um, as, as being, you, you write the kind of stories that when the reader's entering, at a certain point you just kind of get lost and you, you feel like you just keep getting pulled along. So I'm wondering, 
does the character come first or the setting? Uh, I, I know we've all kind of talked about how, or I, I've talked about how the, the setting feels like a character in many of your stories, and you were talking about how important that setting was to you. So do you feel like you think of the place in which you're going to be writing, or you think of this person and you figure out where you want to have them do their shenanigans? Do you want to start, Ron? Yeah, sure. The um, Being just since we're all writers, just being as honest as possible, it usually starts with an event or some notion or collision from the real world. Two things have met. And that incident or event, we start with a man or woman or a child or an animal and start to see what that event is going to do and how it's going to affect them. And, of course, that's somewhere. And I'm a spiller. I mean, I do not... I do not measure myself at the top of a story. I go in and anything that suggests itself about that space and that, that, then that character and that event, I overdo it because I'm in living in utter fear that I'm going to finish up what I had to say and have to leave the room. So I want to make two, three pages. Essentially what I'm talking about is not really knowing where I'm going. And so it all comes along. I... Sometimes I have a place that I'm in, in mind, and, and I know the age of a certain character. The one thing I know if the character is a gym coach or a policeman, or if uh, it's a juvenile delinquent, that I'm going to work against type in whatever way I, I'm working today. So um, I, I wouldn't start with a place and then start the characters there. That it all comes sort of along together. So I, I like the idea that you start with an event that wakes you up, and then you start entering that. Uh, yes, of course. Um, uh, before I first met Susan, when I was a big, powerful, horrifying ogre, I was a student at Iowa. Having grown up in New York, I'd never been west of, of Iowa. And uh, like many of you, I went out to try to get a job as a professor. And uh, there were three places in the final running, one of which was in this very city. The other was USC, and USC got there first. I don't know if I would have been offered a job here. USC gave me the job, and I went to California for the first time. And I can't imagine what my life and work would have been like if I didn't have California. I, I look back at how many stories and novels at the Tortilla Curtain, for instance, I would never have written. I suppose if I'd come here, I would have written about Swedish immigration in the 1890s. So place has been very, very important for me. Yeah, absolutely. What about you guys? How many people start with a character? Like, that's what comes to you first. And how many people start with a place? Like, you see the place. Because I, I think it's different for every single thing we do. I mean, I, I was, like I said, I was not sure what to read at all today, and I went back to this book, and I remember that this, each thing starts with some strange event for me, too, but which is almost always inextricably entwined in the place. So, I mean, this book was, this guy was trimming a palm tree. I was working at a gas station, and my boss's name was Florencio. And this was during the time when you had odd even plates, and everybody was fighting over gas all the time. Mm. That was just, you could see how old I am. So anyway, I was at the gas station, and people would steal gas. That was before, it was the reason that you now pay before you pump. So... Sometimes this guy would come in and buy, like, some peanuts and try to get my phone number, and then he'd go out, and he'd put gas in his car, and he would drive off. 
and my boss would come out with a baseball bat and leap onto the hoods of the cars and bash them in and then reach in, pull the guy out and take his wallet and say, you forgot to pay. And so at that moment, I decided I didn't want to work at the gas station forever. And one night after that, I went home and this guy was trimming palm trees and he had gaffs, you know, like you had a gaff and you'd put it, your boots on the, the um, palm fronts and he fell. He didn't have a safety rope because he was just this guy that used to come to our neighborhood and trim palm trees. And both of those things together somehow, the same night, I'm reading a newspaper, and these um, women, this group of women got deported from a linen plant that was deep in the orange groves right next to where I lived. And my dad worked at that linen plant. He used to have a laundromat, and he went to work at this place that did hospital linens. And all three of those things that happened in the same day was the beginning of, of this book, like the idea that there's a character in here who gets high and then tries to trim palm trees and falls. And there's a guy named Florencio, although I hope my boss would never, of course, anyway. Um, there's a guy named Florencio, and I made him nice. And uh, but this book, something completely different happened too, and then I'm writing about the orange groves, and that was a whole different landscape. Then I started with the orange grove. There's like a a compound of people that moved to California to escape somebody, but they're so deep in the orange groves, which is where my brother used to live, you had to call first. You know, it's not just like, oh, you're going to cruise by this cute orange grove. These are guys that were doing stuff in the orange groves. So I remember going way down all these long tunnels, and then there'd be a gate, and then you'd go down some more. And that was the most beautiful landscape in the world when I was a kid, so irrigation would fill the furrows and it would be like mercury inside the furrows of the irrigation and when the oranges are dead if you don't pick them all they fall on the ground and they look like black christmas ornaments and those are the things that made their way into this book so that time it was it was place so i just have a curiosity question that as a reader and a writer i'm always interested in um we all who are writers in the room know that we should be reading all the time, that that's what informs our imagination. So I'm curious, what was the last book each of you read that you're very excited about, that you feel like everyone should read? Well, I'm rereading Dog Soldiers right now. Mm. Robert Stone, our, we lost Robert Stone, and we were reading his stories in the winter when that happened, and so I've we have, there's several of us who are reading this book. You know what I read was Bob Shikocha's novel, uh, The Woman Who Lost Her Soul, and that's sort of a I'm not worthy book. It just puts you on the couch and gives the couch a reason to be. It's a wonderful, rich, muscular, I, I don't know how he did it. I, I know Bob, and it's just uh, an arresting novel, The Woman Who Lost Her Soul. So I've only been home one day in the last couple of weeks, and on that day, mail came. And it happened that I had said in the New York Times that I love nature writing, which is true. And so people <laughs> sent me a bunch of books. And one of them is from an English entomologist named Dave Goulson. It's an ark. It's not quite out yet. It's called A Buzz in the Meadow. And he bought a place in France, and he's trying to make it into a kind of nature preserve. And he tells me about all the creatures that live there and what their life habits are. That, to me, is utterly fascinating. Embarrassingly enough, I mean, I read all the time. That's, that's like all I do. So I always have, like, 
eight books going. I read Roxane Gay, um, An Untamed State, which is a terrifying, terrifying book. It was hard to put down. I read it in one day. It's about a woman who is, who is attacked um, over a series of days in Haiti. I also read H's for Hawk. I reviewed that for the LA Times. And that was about a woman whose father dies. It was a memoir. Yeah. And she trains a goshawk, which is a really scary hawk. While I was reading the book for the LA Times, there were three hawks living in my neighborhood. And one, the day I finished the book, came and sat in the backyard between my house and my neighbor, Rafa, Raphael's house, was hunting the squirrel. My other neighbor was mad because she is shooting all the squirrels and making a coat out of them. She was going to fight the <laughs> hawk for the squirrel. That didn't make it into the review. And then the right now I'm reading a really weird um, library book, which is a British mystery from the year 2000, which I found at the public library because it was a woman detective, and she's called the hard detective. So I have no idea what to say about that. I have a question, Susan. So the woman with the squirrel coat, of course it doesn't rain anymore, but what if it did rain on the coat? What's it going to smell like? <laughs> I don't talk to her too much because she's kind of scary. Um, you could ask her if you want, but right. she's not done with the coat because you're not supposed to next be winter, doing those things. We have to pray. It'll rain next winter maybe, and we'll, we'll get her to wear her squirrel coat, and we'll all take a sniff. How's you, that? You can come talk to her. <laughs> I don't go by her house very often right now. She's kind of angry. I, I'm not sure if we're convincing you all that you want to come to Southern California, but thank you all no, for... go to her part. <laughs> thank you all for coming here today. Thanks, Kate. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.